Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to a surprise Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. No doubt many of you are still digesting the big long Arscast extra that James and I produced on Monday, looking back at the Liverpool game, the fallout, the repercussions, the performance, the manager, the board, all that kind of stuff. There was a lot to talk about, so we talked about it. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, please do, because we made it especially for you. Honestly, just, yeah, for you. Honest. Yeah, you. Yeah. So don't let us down. Please, please have a listen. But this is a different kind of an Arscast. But one of the things, obviously, that came up uh, on the Arscast Extra was Stan Kroenke, his ownership, the board, etc., etc. And it tied in very nicely with a new book that has been released by a journalist called James Montague. And the book is called The Billionaires Club, The Unstoppable Rise of Football's Super-Rich Owners. And it looks at the way that football clubs are now increasingly being run and managed and owned by extremely wealthy people from all over the world. So the book is in more or less four parts. Uh, part one is Eastern Europe, including Russia, etc., etc. Then we've got America, Asia, and then the Middle East. And of course, Arsenal are in a situation where the majority of our shares are owned by one man, but the majority of the rest of the shares are owned by another man, Ali Shiruzmanov. So we've got two billionaire owners, two billionaire shareholders, I should say, and... Well, it's a complicated situation. People are very exercised about Stan Kroenke, but is Ali Sharuzmanov any better? Is it better the devil you know? Maybe it's not. But I wanted to talk to James about the the situation in general, about the way football clubs are being owned, about the impact it's having on the game, and about the impact it may well have on the game in the future. And of course, we talk about it from an Arsenal perspective as well. We touch on Usmanov, we touch on uh, Stan Kroenke, the way he operates, the way Usmanov operates, and of course, it ties in with people like Roman Abramovich, Sheikh Mansour at Manchester City, the Qatari influence at PSG. It's a really fascinating book. It's called The Billionaires Club, The Unstoppable Rise of Football's Super-Rich Owners. Uh, you can check it out on Amazon. It's available on Kindle, hardcover, and also audiobook as well, I think via Audible. So uh, there's some links on the on the website, on arsblog.com, on the post that accompanies this, uh, this podcast. So now let's just get on with it. Let's chat to James Montague about billionaires, about Stan Kroenke, about Ali Sharuzmanov, about Arsenal and lots more. Can you just uh, maybe give me a, a bit of background about the book itself and where the idea came from? Yeah, the, the idea, well, the book is about the super rich, the 1%, the billionaire class, basically, who have uh, become absolutely embedded in the game. And uh, I wanted to find out who they were, where they made their money from, and uh, whether that whether that was problematic or not, and what 
their involvement in football tells us about the direction the game is going in. And the idea came from my first, this is my third book. My first book was called When Friday Comes. And it was about football in the Middle East. And um, I mean, it had nothing to do with finance or anything highfalutin like that. I mean, it was just me rolling around kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of getting into scrapes in various <laughs> Middle Eastern kind of scenarios while watching football. Right. Uh, but when it came out, the same week it came out, um, Sheikh Mansour bought Manchester City. And I remember the coverage. I mean, a lot of people, because when they put, uh, they obviously didn't know who this guy was, um, knew nothing about Middle East, the Middle East or football, and had put my name into Google, and I was the only name that came up, because I was pretty much the only person writing about that part of the world of football at the time. And um, what was interesting was that I'd lived in the UAE, and I'd known about the way that football was, uh, not just football was run there, but society was run there, and that... It wasn't a particularly ethical place. Uh, there was no such thing as private wealth. Any royal family member that was investing was doing it because of a wider strategy. Mm. Um, they, and they obviously had a huge problem with, with you know, indentured slavery, and effectively the kafala system, which we all now know and have heard about because of Qatar in 2022, um, is alive and well and probably even worse in the UAE than it is in Qatar. So when when that happened and he bought Manchester City and then spent, I mean, I've just spent a horrific amount of money straight away. Uh, I think it was something like 500 million in the first kind of couple of transfer windows. Um, then, you know, I started thinking, well, you know, there's got to be, you know, there's got to be a reason why these people are investing in it. And maybe we should start looking into it because uh, they're investing in other parts of the world, in other businesses, uh, in other countries. And, you know, never really for much positive effect for the people there. So I wanted yeah. to apply that to football. And so, yeah, I had that idea then. And then it, it gestated for a few years. And this t- this seemed to be the right time to write it. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because you're talking about the 1% and it's like the 1% of the 1%, I think. Yeah. Um, these people with vast amounts of money, vast amounts of wealth, resources. And football generally speaking, is not what you would consider a high returns business in terms of what you get back, you know? So, I mean, is there a common thread in terms of what what's driven these people to invest in football clubs? Is it an ego thing? Is it because perhaps they're really, really farsighted and, and we're seeing football's revenues increase because of television deals, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, if you've already got that much wealth, it's not about making yourself that much richer, is it? It's absolutely about self interest that's that's the only common thread that connects the super rich it's about self-interest now that can take different forms and it's different for different clubs because for instance if you look at psg uh, and manchester city i mean both of those clubs are effectively owned by a country uh, if you look at psg uh, qatar sports investment that is absolutely directly you know state-owned sovereign investment vehicle that has bought that club um, Manchester City, they claim, is a little bit more diffuse. Sheikh Mansour is a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family. They say it's private wealth, but there's no real such thing as private wealth in the United Arab Emirates. And mm. it's certainly fitted into the kind of um, uh, into the strategy of, of that country and of that emirate. So for them, self-interest is, is a very uh, almost a political uh, aim to own a football club. For others, the self-interest uh, can be seen especially, I mean, especially relevant for Arsenal fans. And especially when you look at American owners, when I mean, we say that football is not a, a, a business that has, has a huge profit margin, and that's been true in the past. The issue is that I think uh, David Goldblatt, 
called it a pygmy compared to other businesses. I mean, I think he said that the average ter- the average profit margin of a uh, of, of a football club is comparable to your local to a local branch of Tesco's, <laughs> which is which is probably quite probably quite true when you look at the numbers. Um, but what it is with 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 American owners and with the book, I, I could have split it up into geographical areas. So you had the Middle East, you had Asia, you had uh, Russia and Eastern Europe, and and uh, you had America, and especially with North American ownership. Um, what a lot of those owners have come in doing is that they've they've made their money in working out how to make profit from uh, from sports franchises, mm. and so all of them have a huge track record in that. I mean, if you look at the Glazers, I mean, the first port of call uh, was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFL, and they didn't they didn't know anything. And famously, uh, the Malcolm Glazers didn't know anything about. Uh, you know American football, but saw it as you know a kind of a money making machine, which of course is it 's a cartel it 's a closed shop um, you know this is the most valuable richest sports uh, league in the world, and that 's because there 's no promotion relegation and it 's just about you know you've got, once you 're in that club it 's very difficult to basically not make money in that club yeah and so Cronkey comes from that stock he comes from the, he had the um, you know St Louis. Well, first the LA Rams moved them to St. Louis. And this is a guy who knows how to make money out of sports franchises. And that's why a lot of American owners are coming to uh, English soccer, but not not necessarily only English soccer. I mean, we can see this in Italy, France, um, all across all across the world, really. The Americans are investing in football because they, they do see that there is a far-sighted um, growth in this industry that soccer is is undervalued and that unlike American sports franchises, which have a very limited growth, although they're hugely profitable, they could be hitting an upper ceiling of what they could be worth. Um, sport has uh, football, soccer has this incredible um, potential marketplace, which is the world. You know, mm. it has still has China. It still has as an underdeveloped market. It still has India as an underdeveloped market. Even if you put it in places that are traditional cricket markets like Bangladesh and Pakistan, you have Africa still, you know, with its growing middle class, um, even North America, you know, where we see the growth of MLS there. Um, so for them, this is there is there is enough um, potential there to make significant profit. Did you feel like in, in some ways, is there any sense that they perhaps want to or envisage an Americanization of the system in a way? Because you talk about the NFL, there's no promotion, there's no relegation. I think um, your, your quote in the book says the NFL is a cartel untroubled by failure unless it's a failure to make money. And that sounds like something that will ring true to many Arsenal fans when they think of Stan Kroenke's majority shareholding. Well, absolutely. I mean, he's I mean, if you look at all his other well, we have to be careful here because, of course, he had to spin off many of his previous uh, ownerships to his son. So he isn't technically in charge of uh, his the previous uh, NBA franchise anymore. That's part of the deal that he got when he took full ownership of the uh, St. Louis Rams. But I certainly think that it's that it's not just Americans. It's not just American owners who, mm. who, are, who are kind of pushing this. It's every, what I found was that when you looked at the elite clubs and the owners of the elite clubs, they, they're looking at the NFL and seeing like, that's how we need to protect our investment, these legacy brands. So for instance, the Chinese owner of uh, AC Milan, they came in, uh, of course, there was a huge problem about whether some of the documents were fake, but eventually the, the sale went through. Mm. And one of the first suggestions that was being made was to have a kind of closed shop Champions League, a kind of NFL type Champions League, um, where you had, you know, 32 legacy clubs 
that are in there and you you know you, that was it you're chosen based on your instagram following you're chosen based on you know uh, how many fans you have in china yeah and no matter how good you are you can't break into that club unless you can prove that you can make more money than the lowest team on that on that ladder so um i think there is an americanization coming our way and this is partly down to the economics as well of the domestic game not just in europe but also in in England, especially, let's, we'll, we'll look at England specifically. But a few years ago, um, when you look at the kind of pie uh, and how it's distributed when it comes to clubs' revenue, uh, fan the, the the turnstile, what fans contributed to that was was very low. Mm. Uh, has was overtaken by everything else in terms of uh, commercial deals and in particular TV revenue. Arsenal actually was was one of the last teams to turn. Uh, where that dial switched to less than 50% because, of course, they'd invested so much in the Emirates Stadium. And so this is something that I think is is the, the, the less power that fans have on match day when it comes to the bottom line of a club, I think the more dangerous it is for that kind of Americanization of football, which will see clubs further and further untethered from their geographical locations. And I, I think I say in the book, you know, I, I speak to other football journalists and they say that I'm, this will never happen. But I can, I can really envisage a, a game that isn't really kind of almost country by country, or, or at least there'll be one tier that's completely global. So like a global super league where it's impossible to join, there's no promotion relegation. And then a kind of second tier of kind of almost around clubs that, that can't get into that kind of upper echelon, mm. um, which I think would, I think would be, I mean, when I've mentioned that to one friend of mine, actually, he thought that's a great idea. Let them run away with let those clubs go and they can be those super brands and we can have the game as we, we, we wanted it uh, back in the day. But I don't think it would end up like that. I think it would end up being kind of a feeder system sure. and a little more than that. Yeah, um, that's what... Like the Premier League will effectively be like the Eredivisie or something like that. You know, the, what, what we've done to other clubs with our financial might will be done to us in the future, you know. Yeah. So it's, you know, I can really see a time even when clubs, you know, will start, you know, bidding you know, cities will be bidding for clubs to move cities as they do in the American franchise system. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if, you know, 90% of your revenue is coming from Chinese betting companies or, you know, uh, Chinese TV deals, you know, it will make more sense to move the brand to China. Mm. You know, and of course, there'll be some pushback from that. But at the end of the day, these are owners who are used to that. Stan Kroenke at St. Louis, he used to, when I went to St. Louis for this chapter of the book, he was the most hated man I've ever met, the most hated American I've ever met. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to uh, ask you, because you, you go there and the, the chapter on Kroenke basically opens up with uh, uh, a Rams fan talking about how much he hates Stan Kroenke. And I do wonder, certainly as Arsenal fans, we're looking at what's going on at the moment and we're feeling very exercised by the whole thing. And I don't think he is the most popular man in town, it would be fair to say. No. But I have to ask, does he care? I mean, does he care what Arsenal fans think of him? Because if he can talk about being uh, a proud citizen of Missouri and then moving the Rams uh, from St. Louis to Los Angeles, knowing fine well how that's going to go down with, with the people there. And also, of course, the, the system, the, the whole stadium issue there, whereby uh, mm. he wanted the, the local government, wasn't it, to, to build them a brand new stadium, otherwise they were leaving. Yeah. You know, absolutely screwing over the taxpayer there, the people who pay for the season tickets to go and see the Rams. You know, 
in some ways he's accessible there now. I know Cranky lives on a big ranch and he can be, you know, separate from people, but, you know, there's the distance of the Atlantic between him and Arsenal fans as well. So uh, I, I'm wondering what you think uh, he might think of Arsenal fans' opprobrium towards him. I mean, I don't think he would... I, mean, I, don't, I don't think anybody likes to be kind of criticised, but if you, again, look at the example of the St. Louis Rams, if he's willing to to do, you know, to agitate in that way to move the franchise back to LA after riding in there saying, you know, I'm a son of Missouri. I'm proud to bring the NFL back to, you know, to St. Louis. Uh, and he's willing to kind of alienate people in that way. I mean, I don't think it, it would touch him what's going on in Arsenal. Mm. You know, you've got to think that, that, that what matters here, it's not really um, whether he's loved. And that's the thing. That's why ego is often given as a reason for people to own uh, football clubs or sports franchises. And often, you know, it's not. It's a very sh- simple shorthand way of looking at it. That's almost the old way of looking at club ownership. You know, when you look at the kind of philanthropic millionaire, you know, throwing money at his local club, you know, that is, there's a touch of ego about that. And when I, when I met Fax in Sinawatra, when he bought, um, you know, during the book, I, I meet him in Paris, although, of course, he's exiled from from Thailand after being kind of deposed in a in a coup. Hmm. Um, he, he, you know, he, he was quite simplistic about it as well. I mean, it, for him, it was kind of ego. But for these guys, it's about, you know, being, you know, they're not criticized for this in the US in a certain circles. They're, they're seen as kind of business pioneers. You know, they're, they're seen as kind of, you know, extremely good at their job, extremely good at, uh, making profit and that that is ultimately the most important thing in american sports ownership um i mean there's even i mean i even quote him on several occasions where he's he's talked about the fact that kind of actually his trophies aren't that important you know it, it, for fans that's all that's important you mm. know or whatever trophy is that your club is at the level of whether it's kind of avoiding avoiding relegation or maybe the league cup whatever but for fans that is absolutely the number one thing and there is certainly a disconnect i think between um that style of ownership and what fans expect here and you know ultimately you know i mean arsenal are doing financially very well um i mean they've got a huge amount of cash in the bank um you know the 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 value of of Arsenal, if he decided to show, sell those shares, of course he'd he'd be making fabulous profit off that. I mean, I mean, a real profit, even for somebody who's a multi billionaire, you know, something that would be noticed when it drops into his bank account. Um, so I don't think he does care about that. I think I just think he's probably a little a little bit nonplussed as to why people kind of are upset that when you know they won the FA Cup. And, yeah. A little bit upset, you know, when, OK, we're not in Champions League this year, but last year, you know, look at look at the run before, you know, it's, sure. it's, it's that kind of attitude, you know. The, 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 actually, the, the franchise itself is financially successful. That yeah. in itself is a is a thing to be proud of, or a thing to trumpet exactly. about. Uh, how exactly. much of how much of what the way that Kroenke operates and has operated throughout his business life are we seeing in the way that Arsenal is being run? Because we know that he uh, is married to the heiress, or one of the heiresses from from Walmart. Uh, he he served on the board of Walmart. Walmart as a corporation takes advantage of tax breaks uh it uh it tries to avoid minimum wage uh changes mm. you know it, it gets involved politically to to try and uh to stop things like increases in minimum wages 
Um, and there's a sort of a spin-thrift approach to the way that they're run as businesses. And Arsenal fans certainly will feel that, although money has been spent down the years by the club, that the the ambitions that they talk about, or certainly the manager and the chief executive talk about, aren't in line with what has been spent. And by his very nature, Kroenke isn't a guy who wants to spend a lot of money, wants to make it, but he obviously doesn't want to spend it. No, and I think that Arsenal have been run in a very kind of economically rational, but not very kind of sporting successfully way at all. I mean, that's 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 his modus operandi. I mean, he he isn't running it like he's not running it like um, Ann Walton or uh, you know or the Walton family run. You know, it's not like he's not getting corporate welfare. There is a different. Uh, business model here in that respect he has kind of hewed very close to the line of what other football club owners in the UK uh, can acceptably accept he's not demanding state subsidies from Islington Council for instance only because he's not uh, he's not demanding (laughs) that people are are, are, the cleaners are turned into interns or anything like that you know Mm. Um, so in that respect he's not quite uh, hasn't quite dragged down Arsenal to the the level of the other franchises but in terms of kind of his investment um, and his reluctance to kind of really spend the kind of money that's needed now, um, you know, that's, that's, that's plain for everybody to see. I mean, he's, he's not going to go into the market and spend 150 million, 100 million uh, in, the, in the most expensive transfer window since transfer windows existed. You know, that, that's just not going to happen. So um, he, he has tempered some of his more excessive um, franchise ownership kind of, desires i guess or impulses but it's certainly when you look at it and when i spoke to you know arsenal fans in st louis and there are still a couple of them um <laughs> because i mean it, what i found is that he's so hated in st louis that people actually actively now support tottenham uh, <laughs> if they support a soccer team because uh because that's the team that it, that you know Cronky's team hates the most yeah and so which is which is crazy you know and they, and they also just look look at all the teams you know they are all financially extremely well run but they they have not had success. Uh, they're they're all terrible failures on on the pitch on the field. Mm. You know the, the St. Louis Rams when they eventually moved to LA, you know, were one of the worst performing franchises in NFL history. I mean, to be fair, when he moved them from LA in the first place, I mean, they were known as the greatest show on turf. You know, there was that uh, they won the Super Bowl. I think they made the final a couple of years later. Um, they made the Super Bowl a couple of years later as well. You know, so it. it you know, he brought some success initially, but then it just faded and faded and faded and faded. Um, and the rock wasn't stopped. Yeah. And eventually he thought that the answer to that was to move it to another city. And overnight, the brand was was doubled in size. And then when they got to L.A., of course, they had a disastrous season. Um, and, and, you know, didn't. So, you know, it's 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 kind of sad, really. You know, yeah. but this is this is a guy. It's not as if. People didn't know this is what he would be about. This is this is this is what he does. Yeah, I mean, it seems clear that sporting success is not the top of his priority list. No, no, no definitely not. And 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 um, you know, this is the thing when when I went to America to research this chapter and and, and did a few other bits and pieces. It's it's absolutely clear, you know. And and sports owners are seen. Uh, there's a great guy called Dave Zirin who who's written a book called um, Bad Sports, and he's kind of a very he's a bit of a polemicist, but he's a very good writer on on all sports and especially kind of the gap between the rich and the rest of us uh, when it comes to sports. Uh, and he you know he says that there's, there's a Caesar mentality, you know, that they turn up and they lift their thumb or drop their thumb, and that's how they're expected to be treated when they're at um, 
when they turn up in, in, in their stadiums, which they've obviously obviously procured through um, leveraging hundreds of millions of dollars of state subsidies. Mm. Um, but when they, when they, when they arrive in, in, in English sport in particular, they're not revered like that, which is one of the reasons why Hicks and Gillette straight away rubbed up against a different culture, which was disastrous for them and, and, uh, the, and for Liverpool FC. So, um, you know, and it's the same here, but it's a different type of world now, which is this kind of wealth generation in football has kind of become acceptable now. Uh, And this kind of model is becoming much more acceptable now, because at the end of the day, it's not about like, actually, we we need to we need to ask questions about how people are investing in, in, in football. The question people are asking is, we need somebody like this. We need we need a billionaire. Yeah. Other clubs are saying we need somebody to compete. So it's, it's people aren't it's questioning dom- this until until it fails. Yeah, it's a really. domino effect in a way, isn't it? When one yeah. guy has one, then you've got to keep up with the Joneses, and uh, and it sort of begets more billionaire owners. And I think you're right that you know it, it has become the norm where people don't even this summer. Everyone said, well, look, you know, Neymar, £222 million from Barcelona to PSG. I mean, it's crazy. But, you know, it's just getting your head around the idea that it is a country that is financing this deal, yeah. not one football club buying uh, a player from, from another football club. It's, um, it has become the new norm in a way. And these it people... Has, and, and, go yeah, on. And, it, and it started really with, I mean, you, we can go all the way back to any number of points where we can say that's where it changed. But there was, there was a really interesting story, you know, around when Jack Walker took Blackburn as a Premier League title. And, and that, was, that was a moment that a lot of Premier League clubs were really scared because, um, you know, this was, he's in a way the kind of the, the missing link between the past class of owners in British football, in English football in particular, and this new, uh, you know, class of super rich who invested from 2003 onwards with, with Roman Abramovich because he had the money, but he was obviously an absolutely obsessed Blackburn Rovers fan. And that was really where um, the kind of in- wage inflation and the huge debt uh, began to really grow with clubs. So then you get to a position in 2003 when Abramovich steps in, Chelsea were, were days away from going out of business because mm. they had a £23 million loan that they couldn't pay. Um, and so, you know, Abramovich just paid it, came in, paid cash and saved the club. You know, and this was, this was all caused uh, clubs overspending and overreaching and overborrowing uh, because, because of the Jack Walker effect. But they didn't have their own Jack Walker, yeah. Uncle Jack. They, didn't, they had to. They had to. They had to go to banks and, and raise finance themselves. And, and obviously, for many, and you look at Leeds United in particular, it was absolutely disastrous. It was very interesting. I listened to you on the Second Captains podcast, and you were talking about. Uh, I think Ken had asked you. You know, was there any sense of why it was that Roman, Roman Abramovich, who was pretty much a unheard of, very secretive man, all of a sudden became this hugely high-profile figure when he came in to, to buy Chelsea. And people can speculate about whether it's, you know, being a presence in London, uh, having this sort of more, um, what's the word I'm looking at? Not legitimate is not the right word, but, you know, just having this business there in London. Um, and you tell the story of how the guy who was in doing the deal, is it Trevor Birch, the, the guy from Yeah, Chelsea? Trevor Birch, the CEO. I, and it, it's an interesting story about Trevor Birch because he's the CEO of Chelsea. You know, I mean, he's yeah. about to watch this club go under, uh, doesn't know where this next payment's going to come from. Suddenly this fairy godfather comes in. Uh, the guy rolls in. They go and sit in a room together and they, uh, you know, the deal's done in 15 minutes. Shake hands and that's it. And he promptly lets 
Trevor Birch go um, shortly after so he doesn't stay on on the staff. But when I asked him, because I actually got hold of Trevor and, and, and interviewed him for the book because in an amazing coincidence, he kind of comes at the end of the book as well because I, I finish it in Portsmouth, which has kind of experienced all of these owners over a very short period of time. I mean, they had kind of the Serbian uh, US owner, Milan Mandaric, and then they had that succession, um, you know, Gadamak, uh, Ali Al Faraj, they didn't think existed from the Middle East. No one mm. ever saw if he existed or not. And then you had Suleiman Al Fahim, the guy who famously did the the UA did the Man City deal, was the face of the deal, was like very famous. Um, and uh, the club obviously was the first Premier League club to go into administration. And then when it went into administration a second time, uh, Trevor Birch was appointed as the as the administrator. And it was him that accepted the bid from the Pompey Supporters Trust uh, because it was the only bid in town to clear any debt and to become still remain a viable business um that uh, so that that was accepted by the court and uh, Pompey Supporters Trust was allowed to buy uh, Portsmouth FC and they paid off the debt they got promoted and the club was run very successfully as the biggest supported trust in the world and, and uh, support club in the world and it was for me that was a kind of that was a that was a a great circle to close you know that you're, you're you're shaking hands with a guy in 2003 you know which starts off this kind of arms race of billionaire football club ownership and at the end you're you know you're kind of playing this pivotal role in also um you know laying the foundations for a kind of a, a form of club ownership that i think is possibly the only way we can we can keep the game kind of grounded in any kind of locality um, you know, and ultimately, when it comes to the the reason for Bramfitch buying it, it's so opaque. We don't know. What we do know is that everything that he said about it is probably wrong, <laughs> because this guy is so secretive um, that when he came to prominence with, um, you know, as one of Vladimir Putin's most trusted oligarchs, n- n- Russian TV didn't even have a photo of him. You know, this is this is this is how secretive. And so to go then and buy a football club. Um, is preposterous to, to suggest that it was because it was, you know, he just wanted to have a good time, he just wanted to spend his money, which is what he told the BBC at the time. Um, more, a far more likely reason is that Abramovich was a member of the oligarch class that got very rich under uh, Boris Yeltsin. Uh, and this is the class of people that really took advantage of this collapsing uh, the, the Soviet state, the collapse of communism, um, and hoovered up state assets a fraction of their cost um alicia usmanov being another one of them by the way yeah we're gonna um, come to him now in a minute (laughs) we'll come to him and and uh you know who um got incredibly wealthy uh off the back of these incredibly i mean you can argue the morality of it um or the legality of it but in both cases you know doesn't come up very well um essentially buys an asset for 50 million that he ends up selling for i think it was kind of eight billion dollars in the end you know horrifically undervalued um and so but all of that class who got who were enriched under yeltsin and and yeltsin allowed this to happen in return for their uh, political patronage and their support it was this a famous scheme called loans for share schemes i say famous it should be called infamous yeah um and so um all uh, many many of those people who who were enriched under the Yeltsin were eventually would have their would have their fortunes taken away from them. Many many were dead. Uh, many have been uh, thrown into jail, like uh, Michael Kordakovsky, who had Yukos Oil was once the richest man in 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 Russia. Anybody that showed any 
threat Putin's power. And Putin got elected on a smash the oligarchs kind of ticket as well, you know, <laughs> because they were extremely unpopular in, in Russia in 2000 when he, when he was elected. Abramovich switched sides and straight away knew that Putin held the power. And so he's, he has been his, one of his closest oligarchs and has done everything he's asked of him. He's become uh, a governor of a faraway province. He's, come, he's uh, uh, been instrumental in Russia, you know, in lobbying and also in funding the, the Russia 2018 bid. Um, you know, there's, there was, there's this kind of story that he allegedly funded uh, Putin's kind of huge yacht uh, that a lot of oligarchs were asked to kind of pay, and Panorama did a big investigation on this. Of course, he denies it, but I mean, there's there's a lot of evidence out there for it, mm. and all sorts of things. Putin's palace that he's contributed to allegedly, um, and so you can see Chelsea in that way as a kind of insurance. And, and when I talk to people, they talk about an insurance policy, something that is uh, gives him a non-threatening profile that makes it very difficult for him to be uh, to have his fortune stripped from him. Because everything, when you look at Bramvich's actions, everything is about keeping and maintaining that fortune mm. so I, I i don't think you can you can look at chelsea outside of that outside of those kind of reasons hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Arsenal's situation we talked about Stan Kroenke but I think Arsenal's situation in terms of the football world the football ownership world is quite unique in the sense that there are two billionaires who own 97 98% of all the shares more or less in the club um but neither of them have ever put a penny into the club itself they bought shares but ni- uh, neither Usmanov or Kroenke have invested we know that Usmanov is very much on, on the outside and at this moment in time Usmanov is uh, seen in a much more favourable light than he was back when this battle between Kroenke and, and him took place first as to who was going to get the most shares and who was going to take control of Arsenal. I mean, maybe you could just uh, fill people in a little bit um, about Usmanov and the, the kind of character that he is. And I know we have to be a little bit careful about some of the things we say about him because I remember covering this story on the site uh, a few years back and getting a very uh, terse solicitor's letter uh, from a very high-profile uh, legal firm yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, I mean, he, he's very, he's, yeah, he's very ready to send off the letters. I know all about that, but um, yeah, I mean, Usmanov is is a you know Uzbek. I mean, Russian, but was born in Uzbekistan. Um, business, I mean, billionaire, one of the richest men in Russia. Um, he has an extremely checkered past. I think that is absolutely fair to say. Yeah. I mean, he rose uh, to prominence. I mean, he spent some time in jail. He says for a a kind of KGB sting that went wrong. Regardless of that, 
he he's a guy who's become incredibly wealthy and was involved in the restructuring of Gazprom and Gazprom uh, is effectively a kind of a state controlled kind of energy giant that has been used as a weapon of war and, and coercion against satellite states of Russia. Mm. Uh, so, you know, especially in, in Ukraine and, and, and other and other states where, you know, the threat of like turning off the gas during winter is used to have kept to keep kind of the political elites in line. Um, and Usmanov now is a little bit in the same boat as Abramovich in that he is one of Putin's trusted oligarchs. And when Putin needs something to be done, Elisha Usmanov is there to do it. So when. Um, Putin wanted Russia, because it was suffering from sanctions after the Ukraine crisis, to bring back, because there's so much Russian capital overseas, bring back the money back to Russia as a patriotic duty. It was Usmanov that was the first one to bring two of his major businesses back into Russia. Um, you know, when there's a troublesome uh, TV, because one of the, one of the, one of the kind of quite smart things that Putin does, but which is kind of awful, awfully evil as well, is if there's a troublesome TV network or newspaper or, uh, in Usmanov's case, a social network site, uh, VK, which is kind of the Russian Russian Facebook, mm. you know, who steps in to buy that uh, and eventually t- turn that into a much more pro-Putin outlet? It's people like Abramovich. It's people like Usmanov. So they're absolutely front and centre um, playing a really integral role in, in kind of undermining... Russian civil society and Russian freedom of speech. And I find that that that's not being talked about kind of absolutely baffling. This guy isn't just a businessman. He's a tool that Putin uses um, to, you know, silence critics in his own country. And um, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that 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 can be that that can be not be talked about when it comes to Arsenal fans, considering whether Usmanov is the kind of guy that you want involved in your club. Yeah. Because for me, that's that that is, as, as bad as Cronky is, um, in terms of his lack of investment in, in it, I mean, but that's it. You know, he's he's a sharp-ended, he's a kind of capitalist, red in tooth and claw. Whereas Usmanov is this kind of middle ground, kind of a capitalist, but also a kind of cudgel with which Putin kind of attacks its opponents with. And so for me, Usmanov is a, is a, is a far more ethically compromised character to be involved with your club, yeah, than 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 Cronky ever can be. Yeah, I mean, I think it just goes to show you what the level of feeling towards Cronky is. I mean, I think you could put up Jack the <laughs> Ripper uh, with the other side of the shares, and people would find a way to say, "Well, this Jack the Ripper guy, he seems better than Cronky." Um, I mean, Usmanov is obviously very much on the outs when it comes to Arsenal. He doesn't have a seat on the board. We know that his partner has bought forty nine percent of of Everton, and it seems that maybe that's somewhere he would end up. But as the kind of character that he is. Would it have? Would it be him having to accept some kind of failure um, when it comes to his investment in Arsenal to to give that up and to move somewhere else? Well, I think maybe it's pride, maybe it is ego. But I mean, he seems to genuinely, when you hear his pronouncements, he seems to genuinely be uh, an Arsenal fan. I mean, mm. I guess that that is that's a difference here. I suppose is that he talks he talks the talk. Um, I came across a, a leaked document the other day of. Um, a strongly worded, worded letter from USM Holdings, you know, his company, uh, to to the board. Um, they were absolutely livid because um, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been the chairman uh, a few years ago had contacted 
uh, megaphone. He's he's kind of me- uh, mobile phone operator. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in um, his mobile phone operator that he that he owns in Russia, asking if they wanted to be the spur- shirt sponsors, not knowing that he was the, the majority shareholder <laughs> of it. And he, he took that as an absolute slap in the face. Like, <laughs> it's very and, Arsenal. And fair enough. Very I mean, I Arsenal. If, if, you know, I, I probably would as well. Um, so he seems to be, there's no reason for him to hang around other than either he's the kind of guy who doesn't let things go um, or, you know, that he genuinely is a fan. I mean, he could have easily uh, got involved uh, with Fahid Moshari in, 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 in Everton. I mean, he could have easily got involved in that. And he, he's been investing in there. I think, I, I believe he's sponsoring or there's some kind of deal with the Everton training ground um, that he's been involved with. So you could see him moving into, into that area, but clearly he has some kind of attachment to Arsenal that but, is probably, he's ruling, you know, by sticking around, he's sure. ruling with his with his heart rather than his head. But he's got to find somebody to buy his Arsenal shares because Premier League rules won't allow him to own shares in the two clubs. And what he's got is a very, very valuable stakeholding in Arsenal. It's worth a lot of money based on the, the share prices and recent share transactions. He will not sell to Stan Kroenke because of the 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 lack of relationship between the two men i don't think i think that's the last thing he will do the last thing either of them will do is is sell to each other so he's got to find somebody to buy his arsenal shares the difficulty of course is that who's going to buy 30 whatever percent of arsenal not knowing if you're going to have any influence at the club not knowing if you're going to get a seat on the well, board and if you're stan Kroenke, regardless of who buys that uh, shareholding why would you divest your own power why would you dilute it to invite somebody else on the board when you have essentially total control despite not uh, owning all the shares well because i mean for, uh, we were talking about football not being a business before not being a very successful business or you know to quote lord sugar you know the prune juice effect uh, meaning that you know the huge revenues are just out the back door straight away because because of the high wages you know so there's no there's very little profit margin mm. but what what we're seeing in the past couple of years are private equity firms taking uh, taking percentages of clubs and not necessarily wanting to run the club in terms of transfer like who are you signing this this transfer window you know of course they don't they want the business to be run like a business so you can see how a private equity firms from the US or elsewhere could buy a thirty percent shake, a stake in a shake. shake. Sorry, that's, that's a Freudian slip, isn't it? Yeah, you're talking um, Man could City buy there. Thirty percent stake in in Arsenal and uh, and sit back and you know not necessarily, in fact, not want to have control, not want to have the messiness of of full control of a club. You know, being a kind of kind of silent partner, but still kind of keeping the reins when it comes to kind of whether it's run as a business or not. So in that respect, I don't think it'd be too difficult for him to find. But in fact, I'd find, I think he'd find it extremely easy to find something to buy those thirty percent. Because realistically, if we look at football's trajectory um, and the and the potential for growth uh, in the value of of not just soccer teams, but of course in you know as as a whole, but in in TV. Revenues in 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 the in the ability to leverage commercial deals worldwide. Um, you know, I think there, there'll be there'll be plenty of people who'd be interested in that. It's just he obviously mm. doesn't want to, and it, it, it'll be who blinks. It'll be it, whether Cronky will think it's more if if it's making money, Cronky is going to stay, and it, you know if it, if it gets too much too difficult to make a good profit, he'll go. It'll be that simple. I don't think he's going to hear protests or. Uh, you know, there's nothing that, that will make any difference. It will just be about the bottom line. And if it just becomes too difficult to make a profit, to make it, you know, relegation, for instance, you know, which is something that he, he <laughs> would never have experienced before in his life. 
um, you know, that might be the only way to flush him out in that respect. Yeah. Well, look, the way Arsenal season has started, it wouldn't rule that out. But uh, look, we, we look, better... I'm a West Ham fan, so I'm not going to I'm not hearing <laughs> any of this about, you know, this is you, I mean, you're lucky. <laughs> it's all relative, isn't it? It really is. And look, it you is. know, it's it's a it's a fascinating insight into the way that football is owned uh, and being run. And probably, I mean, just finally, before we go, I mean, is there do you think there's there's uh, we talked about what they might have in common, but do you think there might be some kind of back channel world that we're not aware of where they're talking about what they might do with the game because there's got to be some kind of harmony between them if they all have ideas about making money and how to make more money that perhaps okay look this is the direction we want to bring this game in 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 10 years is that possible or is that just me thinking conspiracy? Oh, no. i mean this is absolutely i think what what's happening when you see the convergence of interests um, and I mentioned earlier about AC Milan and this kind of the Chinese owners making this, you know, plan that they would like to see a Chinese as they'd like to see a, a Champions League, you know, look very similar to what, what could then become a kind of NFL type competition that sits above everything else. I mean, we talk about this European Super League yeah. kind of kind of bogeyman that's been for years. But I mean, you know, I mean, we kind of already have a European Super League. This would be, you know, the start of kind of a global Super League, which I think would be something something even even further afield and even more dangerous in that respect. And I think, you know, when I started writing the book, it was, you know, it, I was very aware I didn't want to make it about, you know, Johnny Foreigner coming over here and, you know, bringing sure. the shoddy ways, you know, because, you know, English owners, British owners are just as bad. And what, when you get to it, it's not about nationality. It's about wealth. And the billionaire class is kind of, kind of nationless in that respect. You know, they're, they're, they're at that level of wealth, they live in the same places, they holiday in the same places, they have exactly the same outlook. They have the exact same outlook on how to make their money, how to spend it, and how to keep it. So in that respect, there is a convergence of interest. There's a convergence because they understand what it is. Um, and, you know, amongst the billionaire class, only the, only the others in the billionaire class see that as a positive thing. So there is a convergence, not just in what they, how they make their money, but in eventually how they would see any business, any industry. And for us, it's football. And I I can definitely see how this kind of billionaires type of outlook on rationalizing the football industry and the football game, uh, football as a game is, you know, it's coming together regardless of where it's coming from, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's from China, whether it's from Thailand whether it's from from the US, it's mm. it's it's coming together into into a central idea, which is ultimately how do we make the most out of the brands that we've bought and have out of our investment. Mm. All right, well, look, we've got lots to look forward to as football fans, uh, James. We better leave it there. Listen, thank you very much indeed for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed to James. The book is called The Billionaire's Club, The Unstoppable Rise of Football Super Rich Owners, available now on Kindle, hardcover, and also audiobook. You can get it from Amazon.co.uk, Amazon.com. You'll find links on the main blog. Arsenal have got two super rich owners, and you wouldn't give tuppence for either of them. Hmm. How very Arsenal, eh? Anyway, listen, hope you enjoyed this uh, ad hoc 
Uh, slightly off schedule Arse cast. We will have one on Friday. I'm not sure exactly what we're going to do, given that the transfer window closes. I might do a late night recording on Thursday and see if we can get all the uh, all the excitement of the transfer window into Friday's podcast. But we'll definitely have something for you. Remember, if you do like the show, you can give us a rating or a review on iTunes. That would be very, very much appreciated. Thank you as ever for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.